Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hey, Bobo. How you doing, sir? Good, good, good. I got an absolute legend in the Bigfoot community, someone we both know very well. Our number one guest we've wanted to target to get on the show is finally here. Can you guess who it is? Uh, there are so many names rushing through my head, I, hit, I hesitate to even venture a guess. You know, because if I'm wrong and that person listens, they're going to think I'm a jerk, you know? <laughs> I'll give you another hint. Oh, I heard that. I heard that. <laughs> I know that voice. Mr. Matt Moneymaker? That's it. That's me. <laughs> Mr. Matt Moneymaker, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond, sir. Well, hey, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I've thought about, uh, I've listened to your show before, and uh, I just finally got time to come on and and figured I'd have some things to say and and uh, glad to be here. You're lying. that You didn't listen to our show. You I did. Find- I've listened to recordings you- before, your podcast. Well, I have. Very nice of you. I we appreciate that. Oh, I posted I posted your show to my you know the BFRO's Facebook page. Oh well, that's nice. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, how did you come up with the title? Oh gosh, well, Bubba wanted to do something a lot more than Bigfoot, you know, and but but even though I, I'm I'm also interested in the weird stuff, I just don't you know have, have a lot of a expertise or experience in a lot of that stuff. I'm also interested. So we wanted it to be mostly about Bigfoot, but other stuff too. And we like alliteration, Bigfoot beyond all that B stuff going on. It seemed to make sense. Yeah. Th- those are two basic words. Nobody can really own them. So yeah. 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 I think so. Right. Yeah. And we also put our name on there, Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. That way, uh, you know, anybody who said, Oh, that, that Cliff and Bobo, those guys have a podcast. They don't have to remember the name. They just search right. for our names and, it's as much about Cliff and Bobo as it is about Bigfoot and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of is, actually. A lot of people, um, I'm sure you get this all the time as well, a lot of people just kind of miss the show because they would invite us into the living room every Sunday night and hang out with us for an hour or so. And they did, and we figured, well, you know what? My wife, uh, Melissa, she listens to a lot of podcasts, and she enjoys the personable side of things. So about half the time, it's just Bobo and I talking, and we don't even have a guest. Yeah. And so how many listeners you have, roughly? I don't know, like seven or eight. <laughs> I think we're at a quarter million downloads. Oh, you're kidding. That's over like, so that, I think that comes up to be about 10,000 per episode. Oh, wow. That's or good. 8,000, 8, something like that. Some are so like, uh, this one will probably be our biggest one yet. Like uh, if we get a guest that people like, we'll get 10, 12,000 downloads. Oh, excellent. Yeah. 
well, if we're reaching out to that many people, then let's make sure you give, we give them some value for their listening time. And we can go over, because uh, I've got, I can, I can kind of uh, go through some new developments in the Bigfoot research world. And I'm sure you guys probably always have a little bit of news. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, if you're talking, if you're doing the podcast all the time, you probably wouldn't have a lot accumulated, but I sure do. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's exciting? You're never on podcasts. I mean, it is a very rare occasion that Moneymaker does a podcast. So anything you say is probably going to be mostly missed by the podcast crowd, you know, because generally speaking, the podcast crowd isn't necessarily the Bigfoot research crowd. You know, uh, there's some overlap to various degrees, of course. But um, yeah, oh, so wow. what have you been up to, I think, is a good way to start all that. Well, it's I, I've been uh, managing the expeditions. Uh, you know, the BFRO does expeditions all over the place. So getting those set up, uh, finding, you know, uh, d dealing with them, uh, dealing with, you know, posting reports, you know, help kind of helping with investigations, uh, chasing down sometimes a lot of leads that don't go anywhere. Uh, it's uh, and then just doing other stuff on the side. It's it's a it's a full time job. Well, but, yeah, uh, just like living life, too. I mean, absolutely. you have a family and a, the kids and wife and everything. So, yeah. You know it. So it's there's 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 never a shortage of things to do. But on the Bigfoot research front in general, the couple new things that I think people should know about, <clears throat> one which I'm really thrilled about, is uh, there's a new type of thermal drone that that only costs about like costs less than two grand, like like nineteen hundred bucks uh, for a dual camera uh, drone. Uh, that can do like that has color daylight and has a thermal imager. Now, when you know, whenever you're talking about a thermal drone, it's the, the resolution is key. Th is is very key because we, you and you know, all three of us have used different kinds of thermal images, and we know the resolution makes a huge difference. Like, let's say the lowest uh, resolution would be like on the FLIR one, the one that you attach to your phone. I don't mm -hmm. think we would have ever used anything by FLIR that's a lower resolution than that. So it only goes it get it only goes up from there. So the one that's on this drone would be better resolution than what you could get on a FLIR one for and those cost what about two hundred bucks? Somewhere in there, yeah, a couple hundred. Yeah. So it's a company called Parrot uh, that that. Uh, uh, well, you know what? I'm I'm going to go online making sure I, I get everybody the right details about this. Pair. I'm putting in googling parrot thermal drone. There we go. It comes right up in the suggested searches. Yeah, uh, parrot Anafi. So P A R R O T dash A N A F I. Like Anna, Nora, Anna, Fred, India. Uh, and uh, you'll see. I mean, they sell them through Best Buy. So huh. that could be because, you know, thermal drones are so important. I mean, both of you know, just think how many occasions if we would have had, if we would have been able to launch a thermal drone, on how many occasions did we have a Bigfoot close enough for us to hear it? And if it was close enough for us to hear it, it would have been close enough for us to get a drone above it. You know, we, we right. I mean, within, within yeah. a couple hundred yards, many, many occasions. 
you know. Um, well, yeah, and and I, I just pulled up the the uh, the same unit here, the Paradanafi thermal, and so I'm looking at it. So it's one of these. It looks like one of these mini drones, not like the ones that are four to six inches across, but the kind that probably fold up pretty tightly though. And you can probably throw in a backpack or carry at your side or something. Uh, because I know for a long time, uh, the idea of using thermal imagers mounted on drones for Sasquatches didn't tickle my head very well. Like it just, it didn't sit right. Cause I was thinking, well, how are you going to keep it aloft for that long while you're looking and all the, and I've thought about the grizzly bear studies and the work that have been done there, but um, you're proposing an entirely different deployment of these things. You're proposing locating the Sasquatches and then letting them loose. Right. Is that correct? Exactly. And so the batteries on these will last <clears throat> about 20 minutes and the batteries themselves cost, I think they cost about a hundred bucks, a little bit less than a hundred bucks. So I think three of them come with it. So you mm. have an hour's worth of airtime stock uh, and uh, uh, yeah, an hour's worth of, of time uh, aloft and then it's probably about an hour to recharge these batteries. So if you get, you know, a bunch of them, you can, you know, you get, a, you know, three more of them. You could potentially have it so you could keep the thing up a while, which is, you know, the one limitation. But, yeah, you wouldn't – you I, I, I would think it would be – if you had a really high-resolution drone, then it would be worthwhile using it to search because you could get it up, like, say, four or 500 feet in the air. And if you do – Here's one thing. One of my favorite. I'll, I'll, it's funny because I'm telling you things that you can Google uh, and pull up on YouTube. But if you put in, I would type in YouTube. I'm doing it right now. YouTube thermal hog hunting drone. <laughs> YouTube yeah. thermal hog hunting drone. And, and yeah. And so here's the video. It, the title of it is <clears throat> hog hunting with DJI Inspire One with FLIR View Pro 640 Thermal. Now this is, this video, which I just started playing, that's my favorite video on YouTube right now. It just like, God does that just like make me drool wishing I had the ability. It's a couple of hog hunter dudes down, I think it's in Louisiana, and they have this really high resolution FLIR Therm, a 640, you know, resolution, which is, you know, the handhelds that we used to have, the little handheld, uh, uh, thermals that, that we, we, yeah. we go out with. Okay. This has twice the resolution of those. Uh huh. Know? Right. And the resolution on those wasn't bad. You could spot stuff a while, you know, ways away, but with 640, as you see, when they launch this drone, they get up about four or 500 feet in the air and they immediately spot these very distinct heat blips that are at least a quarter mile away in the woods. So they're hmm. spotting stuff at like a, a big distance and the things stand the, the, and they're hogs and they stand out like a star in the sky. And this isn't in an open field. This is in woods, but in the gaps between the trees, there's enough hogs there that you spot these heat blips and the therm just goes right over and above it. And it looks down and you could see the hogs there. And then it comes lower and lower and lower. And you could tell that the hogs are just kind of like moving around, doing their thing. And then at one point they all kind of stop. And you could tell it's just like, as if they can hear the, the drone. And then at one point he drops the drone down way closer, like probably drops it to about 50 feet elevation above them, you know, just above the trees. And the, the, the pigs just panic, but, and they start to run off. And the drone just follows them, follows them from above as they're winding their way through the woods, like trying to get away. 
And it's it's astounding. It hits you because you realize if you were in that situation and it was a Bigfoot, if it was like a Bigfoot's not expecting to have a drone above, get above it. And especially if you use, you know, tape and you tape up the lights on it, then it's not, you know, the little directional lights, then it's not going to see the drone. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it, it might hear, well, it, it's not going to easily spot it. It might hear something, but it won't easily look up and spot them if there's no lights and if it's at night in the dark. They're pretty loud. They're pretty loud. Okay, but at a certain distance up in the air, you still don't know. All you're hearing is what sounds like a beehive. Right. You know, if you're if you're not familiar with it, you just, you know, you it, it almost sounds like a bunch of insects. It's when it gets close, it comes down closer that that's when, you know, they would they would look up and know there's something buzzing right above. But even if the thing panics and runs away, again, you can stay right with it. And it's, uh, and it's b- almost better to have the thing moving, running away than, than as opposed to like standing perfectly still, and, right. you know, where you're only going to see the blob outline of it. It's when they move that you'll see the length of the arms. The thing may get down on all fours and, you know, you know, cause they can, they'll run on two legs, but sometimes in some situations they'll kind of get down on all fours and gallop a little bit like that. But to see all that movement from the air and, you know, and again, if they try to hide behind something they're they're they, they'd have to get underneath something to really hide from a drone. And, you know, it's, it's not, they'd have to be under, you know, super thick, super thick brush to really hide. That six that, that six forty ability is what you would need if you were going to try to use it to actually go out and look around for the things. But what we found over the years is, if you do the howls and the knocks in the right way, and you're in a place where they're going to echo or they're going to carry for a long way, it does make them curious, and they do come closer. And like when you know you do that for a while, then you finally hear them knock. It's because it, closer by. It's because they came. They it's because they got closer. And as we all know from the past is when that's happened, we've at least been able to get a direction. We've been, we've been able to know which direction the sound is coming from generally and, uh, and have some sense of how far away it is. And that's all, all you need. If you launch a drone, you get up, you kind of know which way to move it and roughly how far away. So with these $1,900 drones, I, I think, you know, that's, you know, especially like there's guy. I mean, there's people in the BFRL like down in Texas who know these great places, you know, near the Sam Houston National Forest and Big Thicket, et cetera, uh, where they th- these things will come around pretty reliably. Uh, and that's I, I think that might be one of the first places, at least in the if we're talking about the very near future. That's probably where some footage will come from, because there's not only those kind of hog hunter guys down there. Uh, but there's also Bigfooters down there who would, I mean, cause 1900 bucks, again, that's cheaper than a high resolution handheld therm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. So if somebody's going to like buy a therm and put some money into it, I think they'll opt for the drone because it's like, it's, it's better than, it's better than having a handheld therm. You know, uh, I mean, I think it'd be great. It's probably best to have both if you're looking around, but but uh, you can get things with with a drone that you wouldn't be able to get by hand. Down in the south, those they thin out those pine forests so regularly; they're so small that the squatches, like you see those pigs, they really stand out. And yeah. also the high desert, the high desert areas, like Four Corners. Those, yeah. Those, 
that could be super effective in those areas. Right. And the closer the, the yeah, and so the downside is the closer you get to the coast, the denser and bigger the canopy is. And yep. the less ability you're gonna have uh to see through the pines uh and see the heat flips on the ground. But I would think like in the cascades even, uh and on the you know, the east flank, etc., the forest is you know, is so much less dense uh, that uh, that up 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 by cliff, up by where you're at, there's I think there's ample uh, potential if you you know if you can if you're up there and if you were to hear them, yeah, you could get one of these up and above it pretty quick. Yeah, I would think that the east side would be the way to go, just because it's so much less of a rainforest on that side of the of the Cascades. And you know, even moving further out, like remember how the forest was down there in the Klamath Reservation, right? How the the pines are pretty spread out, kind of like Sierra esque in the, some ways. Yeah. Um, those might be good uh, habitats to use a technology like this in as well. Yeah, the blues. Yeah, the blues are great, too, because uh, it, the whole place is a transition zone. You have this, like, really dense woods right next to these big open meadows where the elk are and the, the deer are grazing and whatnot. So that might be another good uh, habitat. But, um, yeah, I'd say I, I think I would agree with you, though. The further away from the wet zones, the better on that one. Yeah, you know, so I, I like, Matt, you had that call out, getting together like a fleet of drones, like bringing people with thermal drones, like just putting out the call collecting them all in one space is a kind of a systematic uh, grid kind of search, you know, to really, really utilize them. Oh yeah. I've been on like, imagine like the expeditions that we all used to go on. If, if several people on those trips would have had drugs. I remember there was a time where we thought, Oh, all it's going to take is if several people have handheld therms that can record, then we were going to get good footage that way. But you know how squatches are. They're so like you can hear them and you might get little flash glimpses of them, but they're they're staying far enough away where they're not going to get lit up by a spotlight. And if they're not going to get lit up by a spotlight, then you're not going to easily spot them with a therm either because they're kind of back in the brush. You know, they're back. They they get just at the point where they can peek through and kind of keep tabs on what you're doing. But they're but they're not exposed enough for you to be able to see them easily. You know, or or just see them standing there out in the open, like they're it's as if they're always expecting somebody's going to turn on a spotlight or shoot. Yeah, and those things usually go hand in hand. Yeah, spotlight, <laughs> spotlight comes on and then bam. But they're wise to that. But oh, yeah. you know, but if they're inside the tree line and they're there and they're breaking branches and they're knocking uh, and they're they're hooting or whatever. Uh, or just like kind of tromping through. <clears throat> yeah, the therm would like, dude, within a minute, you could be above them and you could probably get an angle to be able to see the heat signature. And for 1900, the key thing about that price is the economics of it. Because, in, you know, the, for example, the hog hunter video that you see in that, and again, it's for people who are listening, want to see what we're referring to. The, the title on YouTube of this video is Hog hunting with DJI Inspire One with FLIR View VUE Pro 640 Thermal. So if you put in just like a couple of those terms in there, hog hunting 640 Thermal is probably enough to be able to pull up this video. Uh, for to have resolution like that, to have the system that those guys were using to get those hogs within like 30 seconds of launching the drone. Uh, that cost about 13 grand, 
that system that Fairview Pro with the with the DJI one inspired. Yeah, that's a pretty penny. And so at that rate, it's like you'd have to get some if you got damn good footage that way, uh, it would be worth at least thirteen thousand dollars if you got a couple minutes of a Bigfoot running away and you're above it at like a hundred even just a hundred feet or so. Uh, that length of footage, it would definitely be licensable uh, to cover that. Uh, if not for like one TV show, then it's, you know, say, you know, because the most they, they a TV show would, I think, would pay, uh, you know, just knowing what they would do. I think the most they would uh, get for to use the Patterson footage and to just craft the entire episode around talking about the Patterson footage. I think that the top end was like 10 grand is what yeah. Patricia would charge. So you might have to license that to a couple different shows for it to pay back for the equipment. But if you're only spending 1900 bucks to get a good, interesting piece of footage, then that could pay for that therm real fast. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, cause there'd be, if they were going to, if there was some show like paranormal caught on camera or one of those type of shows, if they were going to, you know, really hype up, uh, this new footage, then it would be worth two grand for them to license it for that. Uh, and then once it's licensed for that, for one show, then there'd probably be a couple of others. And, you know, and if you keep getting more footage that way, then you're going to have a collection of stuff that's worth a lot of money. And, and the, the key metric being uh, is that it's enough to pay for the equipment. Uh, and, and you can, you know, th that's a, a much better equation when you're talking about equipment, you know, that's less than $2,000. Especially when you're trying to get your significant other to understand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but now you're in the range that for what people have been, because on more and more expeditions for the BFRO, more and more people are coming with handheld therms that cost, you know, well over a thousand bucks. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is like, say, you know, I, we want these therms out there so bad to be on the expeditions that we're basically if, saying, if you've got one, then you're cordially invited to attend one of our trips because we want to see, you know, how well they work. Uh, I, I, I want us to have as much experience with them as we've gained collectively with, with handheld therms. And what have we gained collectively with handheld therms over the years? We know that you can spot these things with handheld therms because a lot of people have. And it was the ones that we were using most of the time did not have recording ability because they were meant for soldiers. So you could record. So most of the sightings happened where people, they were able to observe these things for a while. So we know that thermal is good technology. So thermal then, and now the ones that people are buying, all the recording ability is standard. And people have gotten little bits of thermal footage that way, but it's still like stuff, you know, blobs in the brush, you know, big blobs in the brush, but still it's not like, uh, it's not like what you could get if you had, you know, fairly decent resolution and you were right on top of something in the air. How, how many people do you know that have that $1,900 set up one, Matt? The 1900 one? I just heard about it just like a, a few days ago. Okay. So I'm talking to now, I've, I've talked like two different people into getting them, uh, a guy in Texas, uh, and, uh, and a guy in California, one of the expedition organizers who's, who's going to get one for himself. And, and he knows somebody else who may get one and they might, they, to be able to use them in the Sierras. 
So Texas yeah, and the, the Sierras. Sierras would be a good. Again, I think the Sierras are excellent habitat for that because, yeah, there are thickets and whatever there, but for the most part, the trees are more widely spread and there's a canopy. And in fact, you remember a handful of years ago, the Falcon Project, right? Yeah. That whole that whole thermal blimp idea that um, I can't remember the gentleman's name, which is a shame. He came to one of my parties one time in Portland here, but um, he was a, a gold miner and he had seen these things or whatever. And he had used the similar technology um, for uh, anti poaching uh, stuff in Africa and that sort of thing. And he wanted to deploy it for Sasquatches. And he, in fact, was going to use this technology in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, was he really? And, yeah, yeah, that was his idea because, and he wanted to use a blimp um, as opposed to a normal drone for the noise and also for the fact that it can stay aloft for much longer because uh, it's not constantly running the battery. You only use the battery to position itself, like you know, like a like a regular blimp, like the Goodyear blimp or something. Um, hopefully, not the Hindenburg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it can stay aloft. <clears throat> I remember when we shot because before finding Bigfoot. I did that show with Doug Highcheck, uh, Mysterious Encounters, and we had used uh, a blimp uh, with a thermal attached at one point, and and this thing would shoot around. And what I thought <clears throat> would seem to me the, the biggest limitation and risk with those units was it, it's like you can't – you're really taking a risk with the wind. You can yeah. only use it on nights when there's there's only going to be at most like just a breeze and no chance of any gusts. And of course, the wind is a completely different situation. You get up above, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet, the higher you get, the, the stronger the winds are. So you, you, it have to be in conditions because it, it, it doesn't take that much to blow away a blimp, you know, to, yeah. you know, to <laughs> carry it away, like just like a, you know, a balloon from a helium balloon in a birthday party. It just like, it'll take off. So, uh, you know, and, and, and not even a drone, too, as we learned on Finding Bigfoot in our second visit to the Four Corners. Remember when we launched that drone to go look above a river yeah. and suddenly it went? It, we never – that drone's still out there with the footage on it somewhere. You know, I you tell know, people never, that story we never got it back. so many times. I tell people that story like saying that, yeah, we had a we had a drone up and the wind was kind of breezy and then this just hellish gust came down, you know, which I think yeah. was like the, the tail end of a microburst just came down and, and blew that thing away. And people didn't understand. They go, why didn't you just go get it? And we're like, and I say, <laughs> well, it blew it across a river. And of course, you say, well, why didn't you just go across the river and get it? I'm like, well, okay, it blew across the river and we couldn't see where it went. All we knew is that it went into a bunch of trees. And I said, you went over to look for it, but it without knowing where exactly on the other side of the river, because it, it, it blew it, you know, over an island in the river, uh, and yeah. and we couldn't, we didn't know, we kind of knew which direction generally the wind took it, but that that didn't get. And then for them, to, for you to figure out, to be, you know, exactly where it would have blown to, we just didn't have time. Uh, we, did, we did go over there and look for it. We couldn't. We didn't find anything. Well, that's what I'm saying, but you couldn't really search the whole area when yeah. you have this dense brush. You know, you have you know 50 meters thick of 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 you know riverside dense thicket. You know, with with big trees. You know, you okay. can't search that because I mean, if it would have landed on the very top of the biggest tree with its light still blinking, then maybe you'd be able to see <laughs> it. But other than that, you know, if it lands in the trees in a big 
dense river thicket, it's gone. You're, you know, yeah. somebody may find it someday, you know, maybe they'll be happy, but, uh, you know, <laughs> all we knew it, it dunked in the river. Yeah. So anybody down there outside of what is it, Farmington on the San Juan river, man, keep your eyes out for a, a white drone. <laughs> yeah. yeah fact, email one it, of us if you find it. In fact, here, here's the direction. If you happen to be, if you're a high school student there, uh, there's that high school in Farmington. Uh, was it, no, it was, it was in Farmington or was it? No, it would have been in, uh, what's the fruit fruitland? Fruitland. fruitland. So, the high school in Fruitland, if you were to go directly from the, to the river from there and go upstream with it about a quarter mile, a half mile uh, d- down by the river from the side that the high school is on. If you were directly to the river upstream, half mile, quarter, the drone is in there somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> if you want to yeah. go look for it. <laughs> yeah, That's probably some Bigfoots too. So it's definitely a good place to go nose around. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was one of those amazing areas. And it was all because, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you've got, it it made sense to me when we were there in, in New Mexico, because you've got the Rockies there, not far away. You've got the South flank of the Rockies, which just gets deep, like seriously snowed in, in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you drop down you go, you know, what in the summertime is unbearably hot desert, you know, down there by Farmington and stuff. But in the winter, you drop down into that riverbed, and it's not nearly as cold. It's not like deep with certainly not deep with snow. Uh, and there's a jillion migrating birds, geese in there. So it's like there's your winter food supply, and it's an enormous amount of it. And then you've got all those densely thicketed islands in there where they can totally hang out, and uh, you're just you're not going to get to them without them hearing you coming. Looking from the outside, you know, it's about the last place you'd ever expect a Sasquatch to be. You know, you picture between Farmington and, let's say, Ship Rock or somewhere like that. It's like, this is not Bigfoot habitat. But sure enough, it is. Um, And I often say this on the show that uh, one of my big takeaways from finding Bigfoot, having done the show for, what, nine years or however many, you know, ages we did it for, um, (laughs) one of my biggest takeaways is Bigfoots do not conform to anyone's expectations, uh, they could be almost any kind of habitat if they can find the right nook or cranny to live in. So reflecting upon that, Matt, I got to ask, like, uh, um, what, what, what's one of your biggest takeaways from working on the show for so many years? Like, what did you learn about Sasquatches in particular? Um, or what, what, what light was shown upon what you already understood a bit? You know what I mean? Well, I, I like to terms, think of it in terms of how it would, have, it would affect methodology uh, I mean, there's a lot that we kind of learned for, but one thing was kind of consistent is that uh, we saw that they they did resp- all over the place. They did respond to the same kinds of sounds. They respond to everywhere. They respond mm-hmm. to knocking sounds. They they they're made curious by the sort of sounds that they make and the fact that they would respond or at least react in some way to our howls, to our knocking sounds, like at, done the right way, out in the dark, no lights on, in areas where like the sound's gonna echo and carry, uh, it, it, it really shows that, yeah, they, they, they make those sounds. They recognize those sounds as sounds that other Bigfoots make, and that's kind of a key thing to, to determining whether or not there's some around. 
But I think a lot of people have probably watched the show and they went out and they go, oh, you, all you got to do is go out and howl and knock a tree. And they totally do it the wrong way. I mean, they could get lucky and get some responses, but like, I, and I've seen people do it like where, you know, they said they've been out Bigfooting and then they come on one of the BFRO expeditions and I see the way they do it. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys, you're totally doing it the wrong way. Like, for, and, and what I, and, and that sounds very arrogant to think that, okay, I know the way better than, them. well, picture this, you have a bunch of dudes sitting around like a campfire uh, and they've got their lanterns and everything there and they're making their food and their coffee. <clears throat> and there's a tree right there, like within 20 feet of the fire, like fully lit up. And to walk over and like knock on that a few times, like do that every 20 minutes in, you know, illuminated by the fire where they're fully yeah. in view. Uh, that's not the way to do it. In other words, you don't make it so that you're, you, the, it, it only works when they think that you, they have to come check you out to think that you might be a Bigfoot. And if they see any lights in the direction of where they're hearing these sounds from, then it, you're not going to hear as much. They're not going to react the same way. They're not going to react. They're not going to react the same way as if they do when you're quiet and dark and you've kind of penetrated into an area and you're you're really teasing them to make them think that you're one of them. Yeah, yeah I think the dark thing also uh, serves a different purpose. And I, and I learned this from you, actually, um, that uh, if you're walking on the road and you're and it sounds, you know, people are loud in the woods. Basically, people are loud. Uh, most animals are not even when they're walking around. So if you're walking on a road with your lights off, um, it may draw the attention of a Sasquatch because almost certainly they'll hear you. Um, but that's something that people don't do very often. So that is an element. There, there's a certain element of curiosity there, I think, for them. It's like, well, why are there two people walking in the dark over there? That's so weird. And, you know, they got nothing better to do if they're well-fed and they're smart, they're curious. They're probably going to check it out for a while. That's right. And, and that see, that's in a situation, though, where they happen to be close enough to where you're walking uh, yeah. where they're going to hear you <clears throat> or they're going to notice you. But just mathematically, odds are they're going to be further away than where you happen to be, but within range of where they can hear you if your sound carries far enough. But yeah, yeah to go out there, I mean, it, I mean, I've seen it so many times where people do videos and I've seen TV shows where people try to go out and do Bigfoot stuff. And because, because the camera people didn't have the infrared illumination and didn't have the equipment to be able to film in the dark... Uh, the people who were out there doing the things on camera were forced to have, you know, you know, bright, visible illumination on them, which just is going to make it so you're you're guaranteeing that you're not going to have any close range action. But to get it with if you do it dark, I mean, how many times just in you guys' own experience where you've gone out and you've done that stuff or you've walked through their area and you've heard them either following you or you've heard their knocks, et cetera, and they reacted because you were there, either walking or making noise, but they're definitely doing something in response to your presence. I mean, oh yeah, most of the time, most of the time, even if I'm at camp, like if I'm out alone and I'm just poking around camp, I don't pretend to be a Bigfoot then. I just make myself interesting. And it's still because of my presence. But really, if you're doing knocks or calls, the last thing you want to do is clue them in that you're a person. I mean, because right. really, you're trying to fool them, essentially. 
into yeah. answering another Bigfoot nearby, which brings up another uh, point that I think is largely overlooked. Sasquatches are generally thought to be solitary animals and all this sort of stuff, and many of them probably are. But if they're making noises, either howling or knocking, it's because they think there's another Sasquatch nearby. I would venture a guess that that humans are amongst the ver- amongst the only animals that actually speak to themselves, you know. And I don't think Bigfoot's probably knock to themselves. Maybe sometimes, but if they're making any noise in response to you, that mean that I think that indicates that there's likely more than one Sasquatch in your area. Yeah, there's like like likely more than one, or they're thinking there could be. If they hear yeah. another knocking, then they think there might be another Bigfoot kind of moving into the area. And they're, they uh, and people think, oh, they're going to be territorial and they're going to get aggressive, et cetera. No, I think they're happy to run into other Bigfoots. I don't think they're trying to keep they're, – they're so sparsely populated and probably social when they have the opportunity uh, that they're – you know, that they, they don't mind bumping into each other, in, in, especially in places where there's enough food uh, for them to, to go after cooperatively. And food would be, you know, deer and elk. But yeah, it's uh, they they definitely re- react and respond to that, and and that's what we kind of kept showing over and over uh, in these different places. And what we also saw too is we and we were in places where we knew there was good credible sightings. We noticed we were in places where there was a lot of deer, uh, and, and so it or or just you know a lot of deer, a lot of like a high concentration of wildlife in general. So the Bigfoots were always kind of drawn to those areas, especially if there was marshes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and did you see there's that news story, the one one big news story that came out just like over the past couple of days? I mean, it wasn't a big news story, but something that I noticed and I think is very important. In North Carolina, uh, a, uh, a wildlife conservationist organization bought, you know, what's called the Jonas Creek Bog Area. Uh, and the newspaper articles have been touting it, saying that this is an area where there's been a lot of Bigfoot sightings. Uh, huh. Yeah. So I, I think in the future, uh, that, that's what I think one of the, one of the relevancies that the that, that Bigfoot researcher is going to have down the line. I think at some point they'll be discovered, they'll be acknowledged, people will be fascinated by them, they'll want to go to places where Bigfoots are around. And just like people will want to go to places to see bears or to see other wildlife. Um, and so they'll, the, the conservationist organizations will want to protect those areas and want to purchase them, I mean, the, you know, and, and, uh, and, and put in interpretive trails or et cetera. But that's what's going to happen at the Jonas Creek bog. They're going to, you know, put in interpretive trails and not develop it in any other way. But, uh, I think that would be, that, that's something that we'll see in the future that like, say, for example, uh, you know, monkey Creek. You know, off of 199, up by Patrick's Creek Lodge, that'd be one place where I think if there was like a nice kind of like mountain bike trail or some kind of like a parking lot off of 199 where people could then get on a trail and go up that creek, you know, a long ways in that really gnarly, you know, nor, you know, Northern California terrain. Uh, I, I I think that'll become a, you know a destination. That'll be so, sort of place that a lot of people will want to visit. That's happening already, Matt. I see it. I see it every week in the um, in the museum in the North American Bigfoot Center, um, because one of the our hottest selling item probably in the entire shop is Joe Bielart's book. Joe Bielart wrote the the Oregon Bigfoot Highway, 
and he it's basically uh, uh it's a compilation of he and his friends and colleagues uh bigfoot research from the 1980s to present day along the clackamas river from estacada to detroit oh. Lake. You know, and people oh, wow. come in and they go, Hey, where can I go? Where can I go where Bigfoots have been seen before? I go, well, you should get this book. Yeah, it's 20 bucks. Everybody can afford that. It's 20 bucks for this book. And it tells you, I don't know, 175 sightings on that one stretch of road, which you can be on that road from here in 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And it, it's probably our number one selling thing in our gift store. Um, and Clackamas River, of course, everybody knows about the Clackamas River. If, if you've done your reading, of course, you know, the Estacada stuff and all that jazz from historic mm -hmm. uh, John Green and everything. Um, so, yeah, it, that's already happening. Bigfoot tourism or crypto tourism, as Lauren Coleman calls it, um, is a very real thing, at least uh, up where I am. Well, there hasn't been any place yet that's been officially, except in Canada. They do have that Sasquatch Provincial Park where they are really, you know, obviously using the subject to get people to go up there. Uh, but there's there, Bigfoots I, there. John Kirk saw one there, I was told. In Sasquatch Provincial Park? Yeah, yeah. Like literally inside. And I laughed at him about it. He goes, no, but it's true. Yeah. I, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, it's got that little lake in there. We were in there, remember? We shot part of, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Part of one of our episodes in there. Uh, and the guy who does the, uh, the, the British Columbia expeditions for the BFRO, uh, Jason Sackerson, he, like, takes people to up along uh, Harrison Lake on the opposite side of the lake, like, you know, so, you know it's a, that lake goes on forever, but it, he, forever, you know, several yeah. kilometers up from the town, uh, he takes people and then he knows about other stuff that's happened at like the Chilliwack. Is it not Chilliwack? Uh, what's the name of the Chehalis, uh, the Chehalis Reservoir? Oh, uh, the, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now did uh, they change the name of that too? I know they changed the name of the tribe, the Chehalis. They changed the pronunciation. Yeah or the spelling to reflect the pronunciation. Did they also change the name of the reservoir? I, I'm looking at it right now. It, no, there's st it's still called Chehalis Lake. C-H-E-L-C-H-E-H-A-L-I-S, okay. Chehalis Lake. And it's just basically, it's due north of like of Chilliwack. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of parallel with ha Harrison Lake, but it's a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, it's okay. a hell of a lot smaller. Now, that uh, Jason guy, wasn't he, didn't he help us out a little bit behind the scenes on our episode up there and finding Bigfoot? He did. He did. And he's got one of the, he's got one of the R2D2 therm systems up there. And nice. it's interesting because he knows he's got some academic interest uh, from uh, Simon Fraser University. There's people at the university that like to go out with him when they go out and do their stuff uh, when, when, he, when he goes out to those areas. So, you know, Canada may take a, a leap forward sooner than the United States. Uh, in 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 the in in Bigfoot research, I, I think, and because I think to Canadians, in, in their minds, I think it's it's a lot more plausible that there could be these things out there because they're just confronted with every Canadian. I mean, is even if you're in downtown Vancouver, you still get the sense that you're just it's kind of an islands of civilization in just an ocean of like uninhabited land. Oh, uh, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So Vancouver and the right. You know, it's peculiar. Right. Everybody thinks about BC and British Columbia and all that stuff or, you know, Bigfoot land. And it clearly is that largely because so many of the early researchers lived there. I think that's really what put it on the map. But of course, the, the just immense amount of habitat up there. But um, having said that, uh, from my own little, you know, world that I live in, there are so few footprint casts from there. 
off the top yeah. of my head, I can think of three, and one of them's a hoax. You know, really? I can think. Okay, yeah. Well, Titmus had some that were destroyed in a fi- in a boat fire, if I remember right. Uh, there's a left and right Skeena River cast. Um, Steinberg has one. But I don't know if it's from BC or Alberta. I have to double check that. But yeah, there, there's a hand. There's like five or six, probably. Probably, I, I can't think of any more than that. Um, and compared to other places, it's relatively few. And I'm so surprised at that. But maybe it's just a a person um, factor. You know, maybe it, the people. It, are- I think it is. I think there's fewer people. Uh, there's fewer people to to see them in the first place, and I think very often, at least I see this with reports, people will photograph them. People will photograph them, and it just like for every one, you know, you'd have to have, you know, thirty people out taking photographs before you have one person who actually try to make a cast. Yeah. In BC, you're going to be so far from anywhere that has casting material. Most of the time, you're going to swatch it on your hours from any kind of place to get supplies right that's true that's yeah. true yeah you'd have to you'd have to go a long way so people are just going to opt to uh to just take photos you know if nothing else but uh but yeah there's definitely there's definitely plenty of bigfoots around in bc and uh all the cliff i know you were up in alaska not too long ago you did that tv thing i think it was called yuletide bigfoot that was on and i've asked a few people who saw it because i didn't see it and uh, they've um, I know that we found like, you know, bear prints, like, gi- gi- gigantic freaking brown bear prints. It was amazing. I've never seen such big things that were big footprints in the ground. Um, but that wasn't featured on the, on the deal on the, on the episode. So I'm thinking, and with a name like Yuletide Yeti, you know, I'm thinking that was probably some sort of teaser episode for the rest of the series that I think comes out this, you know, February or spring or something like that called uh, Alaska Triangle. Oh, really? I okay. think so. And I think part, so. I, I could where were you specifically? Oh God, Cockenock. Um, this tiny little native fishing village. I think it was on the south side of Lake Iliamna. Okay. Yeah, Lake Iliamna was is I think is the seventh largest freshwater lake in um, in America well, or in the North this, America. Right? Is this near Anchorage or Juneau or I mean? Oh God, I, I flew into Juneau. I think. Can? Okay, you flew into Juneau. I. Think yeah, and then I flew from there like on a on a puddle jumper about an hour hour and a half out. Yeah, Kokonok, K O K I N O C K. So was it like in the inlets? Was it on an island? No, it's next to a lake. Uh, that Lake Iliamna. If you look that up on, I think it's just like it sounds. Um, lake Iliamna. I'm guessing it's I L A. No, I L I Iliamna. I don't know. Now I got to look it up. So, but it should be come up. Lake Iliam. Oh, yeah. Yep, there it is. Lake Iliam, Alaska. Ah, yes, okay. a giant lake. It's so big it has seals in it. A giant lake monster as well. Oh, well, no, you weren't you were nowhere near Juno. You were out oh. in the, the Maybe I, the, maybe it was Anchorage that I flew into then. Yeah. I don't remember. I mean, you were just kind of due north of Kodiak Island. I mean, you No, were, it was Anchorage. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was Anchorage. I apologize, not Juno. Yeah. So it shows this that lake is in between the Katmai National Preserve and the Lake Clark National Preserve. Yeah, so I, I was on the very south side. There's a little K O K H A N O K is the name is the name of the little town I was in. I see. Uh, yeah, it was great, man. We saw some video footage of the lake monster there. Um, I said, uh, some of that I think will probably make the screen. Um, lots and lots of Bigfoot reports from everybody there, but like everybody there is like a hundred, 120 people there. They're 
vast majority, like 99% of them are native people. And, um, just, they know the land, they literally live off the land all the time. Like so many other people do up in Alaska. Um, like brown bears are walking down the middle of the street in town and they see Sasquatches by the dump. And, um, it's so funny. Like I'm, you know, you might as well be on another planet in some of these places out in Alaska, you know, it's just like rolling tundra and like the ground blueberries and stuff. And we're out there filming, you know, it's just me, a producer and a sound guy out there doing stuff during the day, looking for sign and everything. And there are these kids on ATVs rolling around on the horizon. And, you know, we're the only thing going on there. So they, they cruise up to us and this kid, he's like 19 or 20, 21 or something. Um, he comes up and he, he goes, Hey guys, what are you, your cliff? I went, what? So yeah, you're Cliff from Fun. Hey, it's great to meet you. I think of all the places on the planet, man, I could go, I could go to downtown Portland every day for three weeks and nobody will bat an eye that I'm there. Nobody cares. Nobody's seen the show. And I go to Cockanock, Alaska population 110. And, uh, and they, they all, they've all seen it. They all Ain't know that it. They go, oh, you're Cliff. That works. It is pretty, it was bizarre. It was about the last thing I expected to have him, you know, to say to me. So <laughs> I remember when we were out in the Blue Mountains, Moneymaker, in the middle of a blizzard below zero temperatures at like midnight, pounded on the door of some remote ranch house and they opened the door and said, You're Matt Moneymaker. Yep. Yep. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's right. They immediately knew and they were totally, you know, went from being some stranger out in the middle of nowhere, pounding on their door in a blizzard to like, you know, them being, you know, you know, probably thinking about whether or not they should grab a shotgun to just them being thrilled. Like, Oh my God, it's you. But what that tells me is <clears throat> whenever that happened, and I'm saying it would be up in Alaska where it happened to you. If they recognize you, it's because they, they probably talk about the subject a lot up there because there's a lot of reports. And so it kind oh, of, yeah. that's how you, it, it's probably a Bigfoot area. People up there are, are knowing who you are right off. Like just spotting you, you know, on the side of the road. Yeah, it is definitely a Bigfoot area. Um, I got so many hundred people in town. I talked to probably 20 of them, and I bet you I got 10, 15 stories, eyewitness accounts. It oh, was ridiculous. Wow, that's great. Just one of those places. Yeah, so. How cool. Hey, Matt, what you said you, you've had some uh, new updates and Bigfoot news and stuff. Was there anything besides the thermal drones? Well, there was the thermal drones. There's that purchase of land in North Carolina where the conservationists, it seems, are 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 valuing uh, the uh, valuing when a place has like kind of a known history. So, Matt, have you been bigfooting lately? And if so, where have you gone? I have been to a place, the nearby place that I go to occasionally, because I, you know, when you say big bigfooting a while, I'm always comparing it to like when I get on a plane and go somewhere. No, 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 because I know you were working the Southern California mountains, you know, yes, in your yes. general neighborhood. So. so there is a location that I've gone back to a few times. My nearby location is in San Diego County. It's uh, not that far away from Mount Palomar. Uh, and it's let's just say it's kind of near Henshaw Lake, which is kind of at the, the base of Mount Palomar. Uh, and then it, it's a flank of mountains, basically to the a flank of hills to the south of the lake. Uh, kind of along the perimeter of the Mesa Grande Indian Reservation. Uh, mm. So that's been a reliable place. I took Rob Lowe there uh, and his sons, and I've taken a few other people there. And these things do come around. And so... What county? Uh, San Diego County. Okay, that's why. All right. Yeah. So, you know, if you were to... It, 
just put it this way. If you were to like, you were to be in Oceanside and you take the freeway, I think it's the 76. It kind of goes inland straight toward the base of Mount Palomar. Like you go, like you're going to Mount Palomar, but then you continue on that highway as if you're heading out to Anza Borrego. Uh, You're heading out in that area, but you're still up in the mountains, you know, Uh, it's kind of out in there. And when you're out there, you kind of, it all makes sense because you have just like, as far as the eye can see, you have these hills that are covered with like dense oaks that are just, just full of acorns. Uh, and there's tons of deer out there. Uh, uh, and, uh, in, in the summertime, if you're like anywhere in the Southern California area, you want to get up to the highest elevations you can get. And so those are like Palomar, uh, and the, the mountains along that spine, there are the highest elevations in, in San Diego County. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's high enough where, I mean, there's places out there that haven't burned in a long time. So you have these very big, mature oaks that are just, again, they're just acorn factories for, you know, thousands of acres of it. Uh, and that's going to be a place where you're going to, you know, you're going to have a stable population of wildlife for, for these things to come and feed off of. Um, so that, that is, uh, that, that's probably the, the most reliable area I know in Southern California. Uh, I've been, you know, I've got contacts up in the big bear area and we get in reports for other areas, but, uh, but yeah, it's down in, in this area where, uh, one particular zone where it's kind of a deer high, uh, where we've gotten, you know, responses and, and, and been able to get the things to come around if we've made enough calls, I do want to take a therm there so bad. So that's why I'm really excited about that, that new cheap therm that's come out. So I'd love to see one of those in your hands. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, maybe we'll all be able to get one. I mean, you know how it is. It's like, we're talking about something in that price range. Uh, you know, by hook or crook, we'll be able to get our, our hands on one soon enough because that's just like, it, it, it's, it's so much cheaper than the therms we used to get, you know? Uh, that uh, and it's not just a matter of being able to afford to get it in the first place. It's a matter of also not having to stress about cracking. You lose investment if for some reason it's up. But boy, have I been watching videos like studying the, the techniques and things to avoid like how crashes of drones happen. And and very often it boils down to like you know not being high up enough above the trees. Like a lot of times people will try to like follow, have these things follow them, like they're mountain biking or hiking, whatever. And they're having the things follow them down a trail where they're like, you know, they're basically following a path of a trail, trying to maneuver between the trees. And then the therm doesn't see some little skinny branches sticking out and it gets hung up on that. Um, and another thing people, <laughs> which very often happens, and this is really funny since the therm needs like GPS, to be able to to know where it's at, um, and it, it sometimes uses the, like a camera a sensor to, to to be able to detect how far off the ground it is. Uh, people will test their drones by bringing them indoors, and they bring them indoors and they try to fl- uh, fly it. And it's very easy for the thing to just like drift into a wall, boom! Then you've crashed your you've crashed your drone. We would just have we'd want to be very careful with it. Launch. Oh, and then the other thing. When the battery goes low on a drone, you have to have it programmed so that when it feels it's 
like, or it, it's out of range, and then it automatically tries to make itself come home. Like you've got to program it so it goes straight up. It gets himself some distance in the air before it tracks back to you. Because say if it's behind some trees or behind a ridge or whatever, and if it makes a direct beeline back to you, then it's going to run right into a tree. So it has to be programmed to go way up in the air and then come over to you and then come straight down above you, you know, from its, its GPS memory of where, you know, of where it took off from. It's been a while because I had a drone for a while, but I eventually got rid of it because I was terrible at flying it and other people needed it more. But um, if I remember right, it's, is it still illegal to fly drones at night? It all depends on, first of all, if you're doing it for commercial purposes, and then sure. also how, how high up in the air that you go. If you're mm, like okay. below 400 feet uh, and you're, you're not above population, I don't think it's, I don't think it's illegal to fly tonight. I mean, that's where they have little lights on them so that you, yeah, you can yeah. fly tonight. Uh, well, I thought that was weird that they were making <laughs> FLIRs for them. Cause generally speaking, I know they do work during the day, but generally speaking, you don't use FLIRs during the day for wildlife stuff or, you know, what drones would probably be used for, I think. So I was yeah. kind of curious about that. I, I can't imagine that you get, I, that you could get in trouble. Uh, by flying a drone at night within a couple hundred feet. And especially if you have a small drone that's not going to go very far away from you, and you're out in the woods, uh, because your drone's not going to start up. You know, the worst that can happen is you lose your drone. You're not going to start a fire. You're not going to damage the forest. You're not creating a danger for other people. I think that the issues come in is when you're overpopulated areas, because that's when you have, I mean, imagine you have a, a situation where, you have some celebrities or some kind of an event, et cetera. Can you, you know, you, you would allow anybody to fly a drone like over a stadium uh, or, or over, you know, a populated area where something's going, where there's some kind of an outdoor concert or whatever. Uh, I think, you know, there needs to be some restrictions in those cases, but outside of that, where it's not creating any kind of a safety risk, I, I, I don't think, I mean, I can't imagine there'd be, any authority that would come up to you and say, oh, no, no, you can't, you're out in the middle of nowhere here, but you can't fly your drone at night. You know, mm -hmm. that's true. A couple hundred well, yeah. And I guess it wouldn't be out there anyway, but by no means would it, would any of us three ever recommend you do anything illegal unless it was really fun and we never heard about it. What I do think that's is legal, I don't, I don't think you're able to do it over a designated wilderness area. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 